and welcome everybody to this week's Maternity Midwifery Hour. This is session 12, session three, um, and my name's Sue McDonald and I'm the curator for the Maternity Midwifery Hour and the Maternity Midwifery Festivals and it's my pleasure to be chairing this evening's session and I know you're going to enjoy it a lot. It's going to be a little challenging. There's, I suspect there's some new knowledge a bit of research and a lot of experience that we're being shared with by Dr. Su Chong and Dr. Erin Khan. Um, and because we always do this to our speakers and it's a little bit, they've both had really, really busy days. So I'm putting them on the spot to ask them to share a little moment of the week with us. So Erin, would you have a little moment that you'd share? So um, I um, there are lots of moments, um, but to get one um, sort of, um, I think I'll go for one a personal one, mm -hmm. and um, and uh, so we have a pet rabbit. And uh, that pet rabbit sort of, uh, we've been trying to home train it. And, oh. <laughs> and this week, it's, you know, sort of uh, uh, came and sat on the sofa with us before it actually, you know, goes around the whole house and we have to chase it. So I think that's a really big moment. We've been trying for years. So I hope it just continues and it's not a one-off. Oh, I've got a wonderful picture of this rabbit rushing around, being trained. I I didn't know that that could happen. I am full of in. I'm full of admiration for you. I think it's a fluke. <laughs> Never managed to. I used to have a rabbit years and years ago. It didn't did it did what it wanted to do, and that was that. So, gosh, that's a lovely one. That's a lovely one to show. It's going to bring. I'm sure lots of people are now smiling at the idea of you running around after the rabbit. The rabbit might win too. Yeah, well. he always win. <laughs> and how about Sue? Could you share one? I'm a little moment too. It feels like the most wonderful moment of the week, but also a really long journey of a pregnancy. So I work as a consultant in maternal and fetal medicine, and we've recently had a wonderful pregnancy and birth outcome for one of our ladies with a very complex fetal medicine condition. Um, so I'm very, very, very delighted for her. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. That, that's two lovely moments to share. So thank you so much for sharing. Now we're going to come back to our lovely speakers and I'm going to speak very quickly as I often do so they have as much time as possible. Now those of you who are watching who know the Maternity Midwifery Hour will know you get a chance to ask questions and you get a chance to chat in the box. And um, If you have some questions as they go, Put them in as you go so that Paul can send them through to me and I will look away every now and then just to check the questions are coming through and then our lovely speakers can be put on the spot, except they probably won't see us as much on the spot as being asked for a moment of the week, I have to be honest. So <laughs> thank you so much. Now, I'm just going to remind those of you who are our old customers, I don't know, not customers, participants, who've been with us from the start. We started the Maternity and Midwifery Hour at the beginning of the pandemic lockdown as a way of, of providing information, continuing professional development and connection for our midwives, our student midwives, actually anyone in the maternity services who wanted to dial in. And we started off with a lot of stuff about COVID-19, obviously, because that's what people wanted to know about then. Um, because we didn't know very much and people were changing services and we were trying to share all the changes that were going on. It was quite a scary time, but also very exciting because there were a lot of really good things going on, some of which have stayed, some of which haven't stayed. Like I'm thinking the wobble rooms. I'm not sure if they stayed, but more about that, I'm sure, at festivals when we discuss that anyway. So... We're now in our fourth year and we're talking about different things and using the opportunity of gathering up the most fantastic speakers and be able to share in a in a, a quiet time for midwives, maybe when they're at home or maybe when they're doing their run on first thing on Friday morning at six o'clock in the morning. All free and we love you to share. So if you enjoy this, this evening's session, you'll be able to access it afterwards, share it with your colleagues 
and actually have a good discussion because for those of you who are midwives, you've got the revalidation to think about. That can form part of your revalidation process. For students, this can be really, really helpful in clarifying thinking and using it for your work, for your assignments, dissertations, whatever. And, and really good, actually, to, to, to update with it. And just to say, everything is recorded. Now, those of you who have been with us for a long time will know all our festivals, all our events, these hours are all recorded and all accessible through Matflix. And it's that's a fantastic resource for whatever you're doing to update yourself. So do, do access when you've got a minute. And that is on the resources sheet. I always have to remember, we've got a resources sheet for this evening with a few little references that will I hope we'll find you'll find useful. Now, okay, big thank you to our midwives and our students and all of the people in the maternity services keeping everything going. There seems to be a lot of poorliness around, a lot of flu, bit of COVID mixed up with that. And and it that does put a pressure on the people who are still working. Now, if you're poorly, don't be working. Go off sick. What you should that's one of the things we should learn from COVID. But also, the other people who are keeping everything going, well done, keep it going, and thank you for all that you're doing. Now, also, I'm not going to forget this, look after yourselves as well as you look after your women, your babies and families, because you're just as important, even more important to keep the service going. There has been this, I'm, I'm moving swiftly onto the news, because I've watched the Panorama programme from Monday. I can't remember if I put it now on the resources list, but if I didn't, it will be on the uh, Maternity Midwifery Forum page. Interesting. Uh, it's obviously you'll have a different perspective wherever you are in the maternity service, whether you're a mum. But there were some very disturbing things about the impact of having not enough staff on, on a service that's working so hard. And I found that very interesting that the, the impact was so powerful on midwives and very damaging for midwives and obviously hugely damaging for mothers and babies and families who lost babies because there weren't enough staff and, and maybe there wasn't sufficient training to support the staff. So have a look at it and look at it with a critical eye and think, could that happen in my unit? What are we doing to improve our practice? Really important not to just get shocked and see it's a horror story and all how dreadful these people are, but look, critically you're where you're working yourself that's really critical now i'm moving along now oh and i should say whistleblowers what the other thing that it picked up for me in in that panorama program is being supportive of people who are standing up and saying hey this isn't right i know they're giving the sort of whistleblowers which doesn't perhaps give the, the the good impact that it needs to but be supportive of each other okay now today is the last day of January aren't you glad to see January gone it seemed always seems such a grey long month and it's also Exomphilus Awareness Day which I didn't know I like to always have an awareness day that I know about tomorrow is World Hijab Day which we celebrate for the women who choose to wear the hijab and it's also Time to Talk Day which is a, an interesting one as well I didn't know it was until I found that Tomorrow's also starts the UK LGBT plus history month. So I'm sure there'll be lots and lots of activities going on about that. See, now I've raced through. It's exactly 10 past seven, which is always my aim with this this evening to make sure I get maximum time for our lovely speakers. Now, we haven't looked at preeclampsia and eclampsia for a little while, but we have been looking at the Embrace reports, which consistently pull this up as a major issue. And we really felt it was time to highlight the issues of preeclampsia and eclampsia. Major cause of maternal and perinatal mortality and morbidity. So the things about we were being talked in, in weeks gone by about um, trauma go for this as well. Because even if the woman gets through the whole system safely with her mum, her baby and everything's safe it's still very traumatic and scary and we need to always remember this i also have to highlight which is also on the resources list the charity action on preeclampsia which many of you i'm sure will know apec loads of information there for professionals as well as for women and families really really good resources there 
and we're indebted. We have two lovely people who've been supported also by APEC, and that's Zhu Chong and Irem Khan, who are going to be talking about some of the research and evidence and bring us up to date with things that are happening in preeclampsia and eclampsia. Now, it's a huge topic, and they've only been given a little time. So we are going to return to this. So don't panic if you think, I'm never going to understand it all. Because as it's a big topic, we're going to have a bit more about it. So we're going to start off with Su Chong, Dr. Su Chong, who is um, the, now, have I done it the right way around? Yes, consultant in maternal and fetal medicine at Birmingham Women's Hospital. Um, and she's going to be looking at preeclampsia, signs and symptoms, and discussing the role of clinicians. Of course, at the moment, we really need to focus about working together and working very much as a team, because in something like this, where a woman can be completely normal and then develop signs of preeclampsia, we need to be able to work together to support the woman and family and baby. So welcome, Sue. Thank you very much. Um, and, the, and the screen is now yours. I will share my slides. Um... And this is always the fun as the, the slides come up. Just see them. Go back to the yep. start. Right. I'm going to whisk through them quickly just to make sure they're transitioning to the right next one. Um, can you see my slides and did they swap screens? Excellent. So um, I'm not sure how to get rid of this menu. I just wanted to give a really big shout out to all the giants that we've um, and, and all the shoulders of the many people that we're standing on today, um, not least. The Action on Preeclampsia Society, um, really huge researchers down in London, Andy Shannon, uh, Jenny Myers up in Manchester, and a whole other crew of people across the whole nation that's making this um, a big agenda. Um, let's see if I can go to the next slide. So when I did this talk previously, a lot of the people that I gave, gave um, a pre-presentation uh, kind of uh, questionnaire out to said that they wanted to look at timing of delivery, trying to understand what the updates are for best practice in management, um, and also to hear a little bit about PLGF. Um, so I'll try and talk a little bit about that, um, and uh, Aaron might touch uh, uh, and catch up where I've left off. You will in textbooks see the concept uh, and um, understanding of why preeclampsia happens. And so the rationale or thinking is that the spiral arteries, which feeds the pregnancy and the placenta, um, develop this very nice, lovely, low vascular, a uh, low resistance vascular system from the uh, 16 week of pregnancy. And then this continues up to 23 weeks approximately. And in preeclampsia, this becomes disordered for a wide range of causes um, that's not fully understood. And so the consequence of this is maternal hypertension the pr production of um, chemicals that causes the cells um, to become a little bit more leaky. So if you imagine that these cells are held together by the cell wall, they become a bit more leaky. And so protein leaks through. And that's how protein escapes into the urinary system. Uh, and because protein is a sponge which holds water in the vascular system, if protein leaks out, then water also leaks out. And that's why you get water accumulating where they shouldn't uh, and increasing swelling in the legs, fingers um, and face. So the key messages from Embrace really are that we should work together as a team, and that's very clear. Um, what that means in practice is that we have a clear process for knowledge implementation and advocacy, um, and being aware that the um, risks are not just for the mother, but also for the baby, uh, working together with our midwives and our pharmacists with regards to patient group directives so that aspirin to prevent preeclampsia and high-risk women can be um, given more readily and more easily uh, to also ensure that the women's healthcare records are easily accessible and shared so that um, she has herself has an understanding of what preeclampsia is and how to seek help and advice because the vast majority of women may not have any symptoms with hypertension. Um, and then I've also added down here about an awareness of how to contact the regional maternal medicine lead for any urgent services or advice. And we're very lucky in the West Midlands because we have a massive team 
comprising of uh, Dr. Ellen Knox, who is our maternal medicine uh, lead, Vicky Stroud over here, who is our midwife, um, uh, maternal medicine midwife, who co coordinates uh, and acts as a liaison for us. So does Lynn Nolan, another midwife. We also have an obstetric physician called Parul Prinja uh, and some administrative team support. So this is Sophia who helps um, um, send out appointments, etc. Uh, and so this will be similar in your unit uh, in your, and in your region. It's really just to find out who they are, uh, to, to put a name to the face, so to speak, so that you can get help and advice when, when required. Um, so kind of glossed a little bit about the pathogenesis of preeclampsia and really we have now um, some additional tests that we can do to further delineate uh, women who have or have not preeclampsia so in subunits they are now using um, blood tests called SFLIT and PLGF some will use PLGF alone some will use a combination of the two and create a ratio which gives a chance for preeclampsia, um, but it's variable across units at the moment as to whether this is being implemented or not. And this has taken us one step further beyond the blood pressure and proteinuria tests that we have available um, with the idea that it can help us to identify the women who needed more targeted follow-up. Um, I put this here just as a slight little icebreaker um, because the uh, um, slide is really meant to show that the, the, the risk of maternal mortality has fallen over the times um, up until 2020-14. And it really is a demonstration of the collaborative efforts that we have in the UK that has led to this. So in 1996 was the first ever RCOG guideline for preeclampsia. Um, I graduated in 2013. To, sorry, 2003. So there was a small plateau where there was no change. And then I went into Ops and Gynae and, and there were new guidelines written. Uh, and then the rates of maternal mortality from any hypertensive disorders have fallen up until more, most recently. Uh, and with each iteration, there has been very significant change. And so, for example, there was a reduction in the hypertensive thresholds um, at the 2010 uh, NICE guideline brought the thresholds down from 160 over 110 to 150 over 100. And that made a huge impact on the number of women who died from preeclampsia uh, uh, pre or eclampsia. Um, it has recently increased um, and the reasons for that are not very clear. But I suspect that we are working in a slightly more complex uh, environment at the moment in terms of the complexity of the patients that we look after, the systems that we are utilizing um, to give the care. Um, and not all hospitals have the um, best of uh, uh, access in terms of simple things like electronic medical records, access to blood tests and results readily, um, some hospitals have um, best practice guidelines incorporated within their EPR, which allows people to be able to engage more readily and more quickly with their local guidelines. And there's now guideline um, another iteration or an update to the hypertension guideline, which is come which has come from 2023. And this has lowered the hypertension, sorry, the thresholds for blood pressure lower from 150 to 140 over 90. And so the, the margins for intervention are much, much lower. Um, uh, with the intention of prevention of development of severe hypertension, um, if that makes sense. Um, and when I sent out this questionnaire to my trainees, um, there seems to still be quite a lot of variation in how women are looked after for pre with preeclampsia. So in some units, they were still being admitted. In some units, they were being managed as an outpatient. And there was considerable variation amongst consultants. Um, in the management of preeclampsia. And in some ways, you do wonder if that contributes to the outcomes that we're seeing, but it's very difficult to actually understand and pinpoint specifically without doing a national audit of preeclampsia uh, uh, to find out. Um, so it, just kind of touching on PLGF very briefly, um, it's, it's divided into red, orange, and green um, thresholds. So if the Tests, which is a very rapid test that, um, so if, you're, if you've worked in a unit which uses fetal fibronectin, actin prom or actin partus uh, for risk of preterm labor, then you'll be familiar with that kind of rapid access bedside testing, point of care testing. So a red line denotes a very low PLGF level and that those women 
have a very high chance of developing preeclampsia within 14 days of the test. Um, whereas if they have a green line result, uh, uh, which means that they have a normal PLGF result, then they have a four week to 84, or sorry, 28 to 84 days interval before they develop preeclampsia. So these women you may, may worry a bit less about. Um, let's go to the next slide. Um, Sorry, that's a repeat of the pre oh, so This one is meant to show that um, when you carry out PLGF testing, if you do use it in your unit, then there are um, thresholds for intervention and thresholds for monitoring. And it's just important to find out what you do in your unit. Um, and I thought we could finish off by talking about some cases because on a very simplistic level, you do wonder, you know, if it's so straightforward, why why are we seeing the outcomes that we're seeing? And I'm happy for you, uh, Sue and Aram, to come off your mute, and then we can discuss the two cases that we're going to finish off with. So, common common kind of presentation. Uh, community midwife sends a patient up to triage. She has a blood pressure of one forty four over ninety two, which we know is to be high. She also has one plus of proteinuria. Um, but when she attends triage, she has a normal blood pressure and there's no proteinuria. Any thoughts? So will we be having uh, the participants writing in the chat box or can we talk? How's that going to work? Uh, no, right. I think it's, it's probably as easy to talk. And we've got a few questions coming through already <laughs> for later. Okay. Right. So, yeah, basically, you know, uh, this is like pretty basic. You don't know the history. I think that everything is really important to know the history. We don't know the age of the patient. We don't know whether she's multiparous or primary paras. We don't know the BMI. Uh, we don't know singleton. It's multiple. We don't know whether, you know, it, if it is, um, if she's pre, uh, multiparous, did she have uh, a preeclampsia in her last pregnancy? Pregnancy Has she got a past medical history of chronic hypertension? Has she got kidney disease? Has she got antiphospholipid syndrome? Has she got SLE? This is a whole lot of things. So I think, you know, what you basically, what's really important is, there is a problem. You have been referred this patient. Take a overall holistic view. What are the things that increase the chance of preeclampsia? What are you thinking about this? It's just one off, yes. But if you see the patient, any patient, any woman, any you know service user, you would need to take a comprehensive history. So you would need to know what it is with her, um, and then obviously you know um, you would. Uh, like to repeat the blood pressure to see how it is. If there are any risk factors in in a case, then you will attend. You will arrange the care appropriately. You'll also ask her if, there, if she got any signs and symptoms, and you'll also examine her as well to see how things are. I think you know it. it you have one forty four ninety two one plus of proteinuria, and then it is not there. You also would want to know what is the time interval between the referral to triage and. And, you know, did she come the same day? Did she have some children to sort out? Did she come, uh, you know, multiple hours down the line? So I think unless you know all that and explore that, it's very, you know, you'd need all that to go ahead and um, and actually formulate. Yeah, and that's precisely absolutely spot on because we want to have a conversation with the woman to try and understand her symptoms, her well-being, try to understand her risk factors, etc. But this is a it's I would say quite a common scenario, and then mm -hmm. you can make a decision whether to uh, initiate ongoing management and monitoring via mm -hmm. the day assessment unit or pathway, or you may consider admission if she has any symptoms. You may want to consider doing blood tests to investigate if there's any dysfunction in her blood levels. Um, but it would be quite easy to see how this could all go completely pear shaped if the that that doesn't take place, yeah. you know. Yeah. Because yeah. if it's busy, you know, you think, well, actually, it's normal now. She looks all right. CTG is normal. I'm just going to send her home, and it's mm. very easy to do because mm. it's normal essentially the blood pressure. But Aram's absolutely right, and that the history taking and examination is really important. Um, I just also wanted to highlight the, the issues about follow-up because um, we we live in a very modern society and we're very lucky and we're very privileged in the sense that we have smartphones, we have technology, etc. Um, but there are people who do not 
And there is a real concept of digital poverty. And those people are really severely disadvantaged because they don't have access to anything that will be able to give them anything from um, a, a contact point for follow-up. If appointment systems in the hospitals now are being delivered online through the app portals within the, the hospital setup, then that person is actually not going to receive their follow-up. And so it's trying to understand you've given them the information You've given them things to look out for when they're at home, but also you need to check their level of understanding and under let, let them know that they require some level of follow-up and how that will be achieved. Um, so I thought this was quite a nice one to yeah, kind of discuss it's really, together. It's an excellent one. I think what uh, other thing that's very important is that, that, you know, not stop doing this. So make sure that you emphasize it on all clinical encounters because, you know, especially if the English is not the first language, she may not understand what you're saying. She may say, yes, yes, yes. So it's really important that you actually, mm -hmm. uh, you know, sort of um, talk about it on all, all the time. Tell her about red flag symptoms all the time. Ask her to repeat that. And the other thing is that I don't need many hospitals. So we actually have app and we also have manual blood pressure. So we have a digital app for monitoring, which is Hampton app. And we also give them um, self-monitoring for those who don't have, uh, you know, the same technology. So they just uh, write it on a piece of paper and there's a patient information leaflet that tells them what to do and who to contact. And then we have a standard operating procedure follow-up. It's mm -hmm. really important to arrange follow-up. Otherwise, none of these technologies are helpful. Mm -hmm. And I think they they do vary throughout. I mean, we've had a some some people on the chat box. Thank you very much for those who are interacting. Well done. And um, someone says, her, uh, Maria Roundtree says, have both BPs been done during a manual BP or the same sort of machine? Yeah. And uh, Sarah said, is this test undertaken by community midwives or the day unit? So it's that's. Um, yes, so um, I, I should point out that these are hypothetical cases I've made yes. and I know patients yes. have come to harm with these cases. <laughs> um, yes. So PLGF is a blood test that's normally done in hospital. Um, I do not know if eventually it will roll out to community midwives. I think that the idea of having it within the hospital setting is so that there is the added layer of investigations um, for assessing people's well-being, such as by undertaking a CTG, or if the woman became um, more acutely unwell, as preeclampsia can do um, very rapidly, then there's rapid access to help and support um, um, if required. Um, so I just realised my... I think that's a lovely, I think it's a really nice case study, Sue. I think that's really good because it, it really illustrates the complexity. And I think Erem is like a little detective. Both of you are sort of working the strings together here. Fantastic. <laughs> okay, so I'll go to the next one. Okay. Um, this one is a woman who's 36 weeks. She's having contractions. Um, the blood pressure is taken at the peak of the contraction. She has two pluses of protein this time and also one plus of blood because she's had a show. Um, any thoughts? So is your background midwifery? Yes, I'm a midwife. I'd be I'd so, be sort of well, I'd be thinking, well, when's the blood pressure being taken? Being very basic. And is the, the urine sample clean? This is very basic stuff, I know. And if if I mean if she's having a contraction, her blood pressure is going to be up. And I'd want to be looking at her history is this new or is this uh, something that's been going on for a while as you've been sort of cooking along um and all the one well, of the questions really of before of, of sort of her whole the pregnancy whether she's a it's a primip or a, a multip or whether she's got multiple pregnancy uh, one of the things, uh, and it sounds really um, crazy to think about, the simple things are so important, but time and time again, multiple reports actually say that it, because we've missed out on hearing the history, mm. um, we haven't come to the right conclusion. And there is such a concept of diagnostic curiosity. Is this the correct diagnosis? Uh, and, and trying to recap the symptoms instead of making the assumption that it is what it is. And so we're all thinking along the same lines of, is this a, a pain-induced um, pain hypertension? Can we get a clean catch urine sample? Because she's had a show, maybe invasive as it sounds, a, a, a clean in and out urine specimen. Um, 
through sorry tenure is best in through an in and out catheter would be preferable um and suppose she is in labor then you might want to be starting to think about the eutrotonics that you might use for active third stage um certainly for somebody who's, who's hypertensive who might have a very uncomplicated um delivery um the active third stage you know if they've been hypertensive before should not include ergometrin because that will cause her to have more high, high blood pressure and that would actually be dangerous. Um, one of the NICE guidelines, I think just we've just had a very new one, up, a new update um, where they've introduced ergometrin back for third stage management. But I think the previous iteration for the intrapartum guideline um, made it a universal practice that only oxytocin was used for active third stage. So it's really just to say, let's make a risk-benefit assessment of the situation, but because obviously if somebody's undergoing a PPH, that's not ideal, and you do mm. need to stop the bleeding. But if there's been a history of hypertension in labour or at any point, then actually ergometrin itself might be harmful specifically. Mm. Um, and it's really nice to try and um, keep things normal, shall we say, because if things have been going so well so far, you know, can we make things as normal as we can? But actually escalation is really important because remember the thresholds for, for treatment for hypertension now have been lowered and so if this woman persistently has high, 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 hypertension even if it is in labor um, then she may warrant a, an antihypertensive drug lowering so blood pressure low, lowering drug um, then you also might want to think about pain relief options and pain relief um, medications um, um, antinox epidural uh, if you if they're thinking of an epidural, then the anesthetists usually want a plate that count before they do any um, uh, administer any regional anesthesia. So um, that was that. And any anything you wanted to add, Erin? Um, I would only say that it is really important. I've come across it quite a few times. So the cuff size is not the correct one, mm -hmm. and then it actually can affect. So I find that really really important. Um, and then you know with this make sure that it's with the right cuff. And once we make sure it's the right cuff, take the history, make sure there's nothing in the history that will indicate anything. Do a clean catch urine to see if, you know, this protein there. If there is, then send everything. And if if you're thinking that it's not, just be vigilant because it could become uh, something. So, yeah, that that's what I would say. Um, and then... Before I go, um, I just wanted to plug a little bit for the giant panda study that's um, running. It's running in my unit and it might be interesting for some people. Um, and so what was really fascinating is that there has been a Cochrane review um, demonstrate uh, or, or about antihypersensitive treatment from in pregnant women. And it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating to me that the two commonest drugs we give, labetalol and nifedipine, have only really been evaluated in 354 women. Um, so there's a really big study now called Giant Panda, uh, which is a pragmatic open-label multi-center two-arm randomized control trial. And what that basically means is that if a woman requires an antihypertensive um, and they are between 11 and 34 weeks, um, they can be randomized to either labetalol or nifedipine when the clinician thinks they warrant a type of treatment um, and the exclusion criteria is obviously there are no contraindications or um, they decline and don't want to be randomized or they're already taking both and cannot be randomized but I thought if, it, if it's not running in your unit and you wanted to be involved you might want to contact the, um, the team in Manchester and that's wow. my, my, pl my plug for them. Thank you um, very much. Is this intention to treat? So what happens if they actually weren't on it when they, you recruited them and then they ended up having it later on, the second medicine? Would they get out of the trial? Um, I believe it should be intention to treat. Um, and but what's really, I, I don't know what the data will show because some people might start and be randomized to labetalol, mm -hmm. not be able to tolerate it for whatever reason and then have nifedipine as the alternative. Or and it may not control it and then yes. have pain. So yeah. I, I wondered whether it is it, it would exclude them later down, or would it just be intention to treat? It should be intended to treat. Yeah. That's, what, that's what I think. Yeah, yeah probably. Yeah. But I think all the data will be really um, interesting because mm -hmm. it might show that mm -hmm. some people might be better off on the beetle oil, um, and vice versa and some mm -hmm. people might need more to mm -hmm. 
um, yeah. both types of medication. Well, well, thank you so much, Sue. That, and it's lovely to finish with something new that's going on to share with everybody. That's lovely. Thank you so much. And I love the case studies. I can see because there's little comments been going on and, and it's around um, manual blood pressure machines and instruments that are in use. And Samantha Lily was asking about, does, does do the women have any other symptoms? So the, the questions, we were, all, we were all saying the same sort of thing, which is lovely. So thank you so much to all of you who are also listening to this. Um, and, the, and more questions about manual blood, mm. blood pressure machines. So we might have that debate a little bit later. But before we do, we're going to move on to Eram Khan. And Eram is a consultant obstetrician gynecologist with an interest guess what, in high-risk pregnancy and intrapartum care based at Milton Keynes. Thank you so much for coming. And Erin is going to be talking about eclampsia. Thank you very much for that. Now the mammoth task of sharing <laughs> his screen. Uh, okay. You see, our audience have no idea of the excitement that goes on behind the screens. <laughs> okay, so I've pressed share screen. It usually just takes a minute to come through. That's all. Yeah. There, it's coming. It's coming. That's it. Yeah. Can you see it? Brilliant. Excellent. Thank you very much. So, uh, Thank you for giving me this opportunity to come and talk about it. I'm going to sort of, um, you know, be, be really, really basic. I think it's ABC of eclampsia. It's all in the name. Yeah. Um, and actually, you know, um, what I want to. OK. So I'm just going to touch on that, basically. Uh, you know, uh, so Sue has already been uh, spoken about it. I just want to say that, you know, if you look at it, nine women, that's about 4% of the women actually, um, um, you know, died because of preeclampsia in 2019 to 2021. That's the Embrace Maternal Maternity uh, Report. And this is the maternal mortality by cause in the Embrace UK 2019 to 21 and 2020 to uh, 2022. And if you look at it, preeclampsia is here. So, um, um, and it is 0 0.35 in the recent one, which is from 2020 to 2022, uh, and it was 0 0.44 before. So if you look at this, this is where it is. So, you know, not, not a negligible, a negligible change in it, but, you know, it's still, uh, sort of out there what what's really good what sue has actually pointed out as well is it's decreased from what it is but it's a still an issue it's not something that we can you know forget about so i'm just going to be talking about what it is what causes it what are the physical examination associated with the diagnosis what are the investigations and the management yeah um so really what is eclampsia actually literally what it means is an uh, a, uh, electric bolt out of blue. It's uh, driven from a word in Greek language. Um, and that's what it means literally, but actually it describes uh, a type of convulsion or fit, which is all in involuntary contraction of muscles that pregnant women can experience, usually from anytime from 20 weeks of, or after the birth, usually within the first 48 hours. Now, they are always sort of, um, you know, exceptions, and the exceptions, it can happen uh, before 20 or after 48 hours as well. But this is what the definition is. Uh, eclampsia is a severe complication of preeclampsia, and it actually uh, affects both mom and uh, the fetus, and the incidence is 0.3%. Uh, um, now, you know, various of theories are there, and, and issues actually already touched on some, but what it's important to know is most of it, you know, it's a continuation of preeclampsia. Um, so you would have, you know, uh, the factors, the placental ischemia, you'll have endothelial dysfunction that's been caused by all the remodeling that, you know, she has been talking about, the sensitotrophoblast, the cytotrophoblast, they have not invaded the placenta as much as do the, the there's was a constriction, this reduced placental flow that has that releases then um, um, sort of causes oxidative stress that 
leads to endothelial dysfunction, that can actually uh, cause fibroid necrosis in the microvascular structure of the brain. It can also cause impaired myogenic tone and cerebral hyperperfusion then that can cause cerebral uh, edema. And actually, the disruption of the neural microenvironment can actually cause seizures. Um, and if we move on, this is the BBB stands for blood-brain barrier. So if you look in on the left-hand side, this is the intact blood-brain barrier, where you have the endothelial cells, the tight junctions, their uh, surrounding uh, structures, basement membrane and astrocytes. These are just some cells in the brain. But when you look at the damaged uh, blood-brain barrier, you see how all these cells are broken and the cytokines can go in and uh, out quite easily. Um, and that is what actually, you know, is thought to be one of the reasons why eclampsia does occur. Uh, it also, you know, it, it, this is just another form that is showing you the continuation. Um, predisposing factors to preeclampsia cause abnormal presentation, hyperperfusion, hyperperfusion, because that is the one that actually releases an oxidative um, damage and ischemia of the placenta. That actually leads to diffuse endothelial damage, systemic hypertension, increased cerebral vascular resistance that will cause vasospasm or contraction uh, in the cerebral vasculature, cerebral edema, and symptoms of seizures. What are the warning signs? What do I want to know? So, so you, if I'm a clinician and if, or if I'm a midwife, what do I want to know about this? So, how do I know somebody's having this? So, you know, initially I've established the risk factors, the, the you know, the moderate risk factor and high risk factor for eclampsia, for preeclampsia, and that can actually go on to have those women can have eclampsia, but eclampsia can occur without overt. Uh, preeclampsia. It's important to keep that in mind. What are the possible warning signs of eclampsia? They have severe headache, they have abdominal pain, they have nausea, vomiting, they're not able to pass urine, they have difficulty breathing, they've got swelling and they've got blurred vision. Now, you know, some of the things uh, like swelling of the hand, face or ankle or nausea um, are features of pregnancy. And that's where it is so important to actually ask the woman and take her history. You know, all this is that I'm saying has to be taken in conjunction with a whole um, a whole history, previous history. Um, and these are what, what I'm telling you about the signs and symptoms here. These are the sort of things um, that are common, but they are atypical cases as well. So we need to have high index of suspicion. But usually when we talk, we talk about what is general, what is common. What is the most important thing if you have somebody with eclampsia, somebody who's fitting, a pregnant woman who's fitting? Uh, first of all, you know, um, you call for help. And who do you think you'll be calling for help? So if this is a patient who's fitting, there's an emergency buzzer, you are the midwife, and you go in that room and you saw this woman and your midwifery colleague says, uh, she's been induced for severe hypertension and, you know, let's say she's uh, delivered um, and she's having a fit. What are you going to do? You're going to call for help, yeah? Because she's calling emergency buzzer, you've gone in, you either will send somebody or go and say, can you call for 2222, come to this room, there's eclamptic, obstetric emergency, eclamptic fit, and you will get obstetrician, you'll get neonatologist, you'll get anesthetist, Yeah. And what we'll do is you'll go in, you make sure she's on left lateral, airway secured. What's gonna go, what's gonna be really harmful to her life first if she stops breathing? Yeah. So it's just really, really important. It's eclampsia, you do the ABC. Do the airway, make sure that the airway is patent, make sure she's breathing. If she's fitting, she can still breathe. You can put her on left lateral, make sure her tongue is out, put some oxygen on. You've done a, a, you've done B, then you go to C. When you go to C, you will put two intravenous IV access. Yeah, you'll make sure you'll do a blood pressure at that time. When you're doing intravenous access, that's the time for you to do the bloods. The bloods you will be sending will be for a count to look for hemoglobin and to look for platelets. Why would you want to look for hemoglobin? Um, you would want to look for hemoglobin to see whether she's got any hemolysis. Why are you interested in hemolysis? Because it's one, it's it's a complication of severe preeclampsia. It can be a complication for eclampsia as well. It could 
predisposed, uh, it can precede um, uh, eclampsia or it can follow eclampsia. So, so that's why it's important for you to do a hemoglobin when you do a full blood count. And the platelets you'll be looking for, whether they're low or not, because help also have low platelets. Also in severe eclampsia, you have low platelets. So that's what you'll be looking for for blood count. You also do urea and electrolytes in this patient. And what are you looking for this? You're looking for creatinine, yeah? So you need to know, because preeclampsia and eclampsia is a multi-system disorder, yeah, it is important for you to know whether it's affected the kidneys. Has it affected the kidneys? What is the creatinine? And why is it important to know that? Well, what's the creatinine? Because the drug that we give for treatment, which is a magnesium sulfate, 90% of its excretion is through kidneys. You need to know what it is because if you're going to put you on this, you're going to, you know, you don't know, you don't have the blood. Let's see, she's just come in and, you know, um, She's she's having this thing. You would actually put IV access, take the blood, send them off, put magnesium sulfate, and and then you know have if she's not delivered, do a delivery plan and evaluate everything. Um, it, it's important to know creatinine because you may have to change the dose of magnesium sulfate. If it's more than one fifty creatinine, we tend to to stop there. If it's more than hundred, we tend to half it. Yeah, so it's really important uh, to actually know what that is. When you then you also will do liver function test. Liver function test you will need to know elevated liver enzymes. Yeah, what are the transaminases doing? What is the gamma doing? How extensive is this damage? So she's you know her BBB her blood brain barrier uh, you know has been affected. This lady is having fit. She's a multi system disorder. Is the liver affected as well? That's what you're going to be looking at in the liver function test and you'll do clotting as well because what happens where does the clotting uh, it's a synthetic function of the liver so liver will not only be affected by the liver function test you'll only also be able to find out what the clotting is as well and DIC is one of the complications of a severe preeclampsia so you will look at that as well we do tend to send a peripheral film to look if uh, there are broken cells in it, anocytosis, poclocytosis, we do a retic count. Retic count are the young blood cells, yeah? So if we do a retic count, what that tells us is there's hemolysis being on, going on and the body is actually trying to build more blood cells. So the retic count would be high. And we'll do a LDH. LDH is uh, an oxidative substance. It comes out when the breaks, the blood cells are broken. So these are the sort of things you, you know, you'll, send for um now the how many things i have said quite a few things now if somebody's fitting there you're not gonna you know that's why before you do anything you need help you need people there yeah it's, it's a very different situation you can't do all these things one will be airway one will be sorting breathing one will be doing the circulation you have to stabilize the mom first if there's a massive bradycardia don't go rushing to the to the theta, mom has to be stabilized first. And when mom is stabilized, then we can talk about delivery plan and can you evaluate everything. So it's really, really important. I think one of the most important thing is that, you know, when we have patients like this, when we have severe preeclampsia, first of all, let's not come to this stage. It start, you know, if you think somebody's got severe preeclampsia, start a magnesium sulfate, because that actually more than half the risk of having, you know, eclamptic fat. So, and make sure that we inform our anesthetist, like, look, we've got a severe preeclamptic here, you know, she could have a fat, so, you, you know, be there. Now, when you're giving intercalation, when you're putting IV axes and, you know, taking blood and sorting magnesium sulfate, uh, in real life, all this takes time. It's not something, you know, it's very easy to go through it here, but it takes real time. And that's why we have pre-filled um, uh, medications in the in the eclamptic box, yeah? Because imagine, I'm gonna just go through, uh, I'm just gonna show you the doses a bit later, and then you will know how difficult it is to actually remember those doses. Especially when, you know, this lady is fitting, you have, you know, maybe have a SHO or a GP trainee with you, you know, you're, you have less staffing on there, you know, it's it's really, really, that's why what it's important to to make sure, familiarize yourself. Where is the where is the eclamptic box in your labor ward? Where is it kept? Do you know? If you don't, please go tomorrow and have a look. 
Do you know where the MOH boxes? Do you know where the anaphylactic shock boxes? Please do that. These are little, little nuggets that are really, really important to keep in mind. And this is basically something that's in a in in you know in a tabulated form that just tells you call for help. Uh, I've already said support, airway, breathing, uh, circulation, control seizures. Yeah. So once you've done ABC control seizures, you'll give magnesium sulfate. It's usually four grams IV over five to ten minutes. Then you'll give a loading. Uh, you'll do a maintenance of one gram for at least twenty four hours. If she's having recurrent, then you'll give two to four. Uh, we don't, you know, um, don't don't give diazepam or tylenol or anything like that. Um, and basically, this is pretty much what I've said, how much the regime, this is directly from the NICE guideline, the 2023 one. And, um, and one really important thing is, so let's say if this woman has delivered at eight o'clock in the morning and this fit is at 10 o'clock, yeah, in, in, the, in the morning, and you've started her magnesium sulfate. When do you think you'll stop the magnesium sulfate? From eight o'clock next day or 10 o'clock next day? I think what's most important for you to remember is that it'll be 24 hours after birth or the last fit, whichever is later. Yeah, that is a really, really important point to take, take home. So. And um, you know, look out for the signs of magnesium toxicity. I, I touched on it before. Um, it can occur if serum magnesium is more than four. Um, infusion should be stopped and we should check. We do hourly patellar reflexes to make sure that uh, the um, lady doesn't lose her tendon deep tendon reflexes because that's one of the, one of the signs. Um, also, the respiratory rate is to be done and oxygen saturation have to be done when she's on. Um, what if you think, what happens now, you know, this woman, you have another, you've sorted her, you you have beautifully sorted her fit. Now you have another emergency buzzer and say, sorry, she stopped breathing. What's she going to do? What are you going to think? Oh, this is a woman, we are waiting for her creatinine. She's eclamptic, she's had a fit, we put magnesium sulfate, she stopped breathing. What do we think it is? Yeah, my one, you could think it's magnesium sulfate toxicity, yeah? So give her calci calcium gluconate, which is an antidote. And what's the most important thing about calcium calcnote, uh, gluconate? Remember the 10. 10 mils of calcium gluconate, 10% IV, yeah? Two tenths, remember that. We actually give it over 10 minutes, not three minutes. So it's 10, 10, 10. So, you know, these little things you will not forget when you're actually in that and libidrol hydrazine i've i've written the dose this is from the prompt this is what we use in our guideline but you know you're not going to remember it so make sure you familiarize where your where your eclamptic box is because this will be these will be there yeah this is just a flow chart to you know do what um if you know if you are if you have cystic blood pressure like this so you know what you'll do is you'll make sure she's not asthmatic if you're asthmatic you'll go to nifedipine and if the nifedipine doesn't work you'll go to hydrolyzine uh, but if she's not then you'll give her libitolol uh iv yeah and this is the dose you would go up to maximum um of um sort of four doses iv and if that doesn't work you'll start iv infusion so when i was talking to you about investigation of this lady who was fitting i was talking about i talked talk to you about the bloods. I didn't talk about anything else because that's not what you're going to do at that time. You'll just be doing that. You'll be managing her seizures, yeah? But once her eclampsia is sorted, you will be looking at doing a urine PCR and you will, if later on she's symptomatic, you will have a radiological CT uh, or MRI brain. And I'll come to in a minute as to why we do that. If she's not, if she's still pregnant, you'll do a CTG. If a fit and everything is settled and stuff, I've written ultrasound scan there, but we tend to, depending on the gestation, usually when we start a magnesium sulfate drip, we, we tend to deliver them. Um, usually, that's the usual, depending on the timing. So I have started somebody at, at 26 weeks and stopped uh, once everything is settled, but that's not usual. Usual practice is you start and then you deliver. Now, the other thing I haven't mentioned is that um, what you have to do is you 
you have to ensure that the blood pressure falls, there's no adverse effects to the woman or the baby if she's still, and you modify the treatment. So if she's not responding, you could, or she's had recurrent, you could give her something, uh, like I said, two to four. Uh, if she's not responding to libitolol, you can give or uh, um, you can give her hydrolyzine, but you have to preload her before. Um, the other thing is that when you start on magnesium sulfate, you have to look at the fluid overload as well, um, because of uh, Sue had talked about the permeability, the intravascular permeability. Intravascular oncotic pressure is quite low. This uh, the the blood vessels are really permeable, so all the proteins go out, all the water goes out. So giving her lots and lots of water is not going to help her because it's all going to come out. So you have to limit the fluid to eighty mLs per hour. It could be eighty eighty five, and unless she's got ongoing hemorrhage and things, and then you replace that. Now steroids, you have to manage her if uh, according to you know again. What is a gestation? So if this lady is, you know, 37, 38 weeks, you don't, 36, you don't have to think about steroids. If you're talking about somebody who's 32 plus three or something, you'll be thinking about that. Yeah. Mode of delivery, again, clinical circumstances and the woman's preference and the gestation. It'll be very difficult to offer somebody a, a normal vaginal delivery at 32 weeks if, if she's having repeated mm -hmm. eclamptic fits. Um, and postnatal is really important as well, what you're going to do. Some of the complications, placental abruption, preterm labor, blood clotting issues, help I've mentioned. Now, because of this uh, permeability of the membranes everywhere in the brain, in the you know various organs, they can have pulmonary edema and they can be quite breathless. So it's important to keep an eye on that. Press is actually um, um, a sort of a brain uh, condition. It's a posterior reversible encephalopathic syndrome. And, you know, they are not able to talk coherently. They can't see, you know, they, they do lose some of the cognitive functions and stroke. Yeah, stroke, stillbirth, and at the end, death. So these are these are the real complications. Um, now, it, it's it's a very very quick overview of what we do postnatally because it's important. Now, you know, you may not be in the you may not be in the hospital setting. You may be in the you may be in the community, and you've got this lady who's come up with it. So you know, make sure if it's you, this would already be done. We tend to anybody who's got a clamped fit, we tend to discharge them about four or five days. So what is what is the practice in your hospital with an eclamptic fit? No set practice. Just home when the woman is stable and um ready. So yes. there's no set standard for, but I would say the median stay would be approximately five to six days. So. Yes. First 24 hours on HDU because they yes. still have to be on magnesium. The next 24 mm -hmm. hours will be monitoring their general well-being, trying mm -hmm. to normalize as much as possible, weaning off any mm -hmm. intravenous um, antihypertensives. Mm -hmm. Then the next two to three days will be trying to make sure that they feel okay, um, bonding with baby, you know, baby mm -hmm. might be on NICU. Mm -hmm. um, they're happy with feeding before they go home. Mm -hmm. But I would agree for about five yeah. to six days. Yeah. So, yeah, we tend to sort of, we have a five days cut off. We don't tend to, unless she's brilliant and, you know, really absolutely turns back to normal and she wants to go home, then yes. But usually it's five days with us. And, we, you know, if it's, if it's a step down from critical care, uh, severe, you know, this is what you will do. Every You will measure the platelet counts. You'll do serum creatinine 48 to 72 hours after the step down and repeat as clinically indicated. Yeah. And she can uh, be transferred to community care when she's got no symptoms of preeclampsia. What's really important is every time you do the blood pressure, make sure you ask them, have you got severe headache? Have you got epigastric pain? Because they can have this. It's common at 48 hours after, but they can have it, um, you know, a week or so as well. And um and the GP will uh, check, um, you know, we'll check them in six to eight weeks time. Um, a choice of treatment, we usually give in a lateral and monitor after they're settled. Additional treatment if it's required and they can breastfeed. If they're preterm, we monitor the blood uh, pressure and baby to make sure that the baby's fine. And uh, this is actually directly taken from the, uh, from the NICE hypertensive guideline. You can have a look at it. I think I will just touch on one thing, which is, Women with any kind of hypertensive <laughs> disorders in pregnancy, overall risk in the next time is one in five. And that's it for me. Lovely. Thank you so much. <laughs> I have to say, I, I, it's, I know it's a huge, huge topic.
and you've both given us such a lot of information. I suspect that many of our audience are going to have to relook at some of these bits to to kind of go, especially when we get to the drug calculations. And when I was looking at the algorithm, I was thinking, well, I've been involved in these sort of things before, and you can't. When you look at it like this in a in a, a, a presentation, you think, oh, how on earth would anyone cope with that how do we know but this is where and I think you've both really underlined the importance of the teamwork aspect because you you do work so well together so it's not not you doing everything the only thing you're doing the first uh, the first time you you find if you find a woman fitting is to actually get help preferably remaining with the woman while you're getting help yeah. sent to you there are now we're, we've run very short of time so we've i think a lot of the questions that have come through have been answered um and we can send uh your queries to sue and iram for those of you watching but i'll just again there's been quite a few bits about um blood pressure machines and sue has sent some links through from apec which are really very useful so do have a look look at there and um, someone asked about PCRs. I think we've dealt with that one. What is the question about the PCR? PCR, you just got a question. That might be to do with oh. one of the case studies. Actually. Oh, urine protein creatine yeah. ratio. So it's the um, amount of protein that is in the urine. Right. Protein okay. creatine ratio. Yeah. Okay, fabulous. Thank you. And Maria Connell, hi, Maria, is saying, can you explain why women of black origin don't respond to labetalol the same as Caucasian women. I'm not sure if this one, one's not for Sue. I believe that data is actually inadequate. And ah. so that's why the giant panda study is really, ah. really important. So the information about Afro-Caribbean ethnicity and beta blockers specifically relate to the non-pregnant population. And so Fabulous. if... Giant Panda is not running in your unit. Please do get in touch with um, Jenny Meyer's team in Manchester to see how it can be started up. It will be an, an amazing study because it's such a basic thing that I, to be quite honest with you, took for granted for many, many years. Mm. Um, and I think the data that will be gained from that study will be informative for the future care of all our patients. Um, I wanted to say that actually in this country, we are very fortunate because we very rarely see eclampsia and that's partly because of the excellent care that the midwives give to yeah. our women and all the individuals involved um, in the community and actually in hospital. Having those very basic routine appointments yeah. um, is so vital to prevention of any harm to our patients. So thank you yeah. very much. I think it is quite interesting, isn't it? Because it's pregnancy and, and childbirth are mostly normal. But you always have to have at the back of your mind when something kind of comes up as a little ringing bell, this could be something. And it's getting the balance between trying to. And I think you said about it, keeping it as normal as possible and um, the normal making sure you're not intervening, but you're watching and you're questioning. Mm -hmm. And I love the diagnostic curiosity. I'm going to put that in my little little notes safely away so thank you for that one um and then alice alice is saying is it easy to differentiate between help and hyponatremia using blood results this might be one for erin help and hyponatremia hyponatremia um they're different they, they are different things so um yeah, hyponatremia is low sodium. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, help is hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets. So you should be able to differentiate them quite easily. Yeah. Okay. So I think we might be we might be going into help at a later little um, presentation. I think because mm -hmm. <laughs> I know it's a it's it's something that people get concerned mm -hmm. about. And uh, Rebecca Allison is saying, do you recommend an ECG while you're giving magnesium sulfate? Oh, we wouldn't recommend unless there are issues, no. I wouldn't okay. have any symptoms, no. Okay. I can understand right. the rationale for why that question was being asked because there is a sense that magnesium can cause quite severe tachycardia, flushing, kind of mm -hmm. quite strong chest, central chest discomfort. Um, 
it's not we're not giving it to the levels that it would cause very significant toxicity um and i would not delay magnesium sulfate for the sake of looking for an ecg machine we're not at a point oh, yes. where they need um continuous cardiac yeah. monitoring mm-hmm. and i wouldn't do it if she's not symptomatic right okay that's grand and then juliet samuel hi juliet juliet's a regular of ours and she's saying how common is liver or are liver complications with eclampsia or following eclampsia I think it's 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 actually you know um, it's more cerebral than liver uh, that can actually be long lasting. It's usually if it's treated with magnesium sulfate and delivery, it, it, you know you can have a really good prognosis. So come come on this yourself. What are your views about that? I think it really depends on the terminology of liver dysfunction. So it's very common to get liver dysfunction on the blood markers when there is severe preeclampsia or eclampsia. There is very, very um, little evidence to suggest that there will be longer term liver failure. Um, there is some suggestion, even from a renal perspective, that in 10 years, there may only be one extra case of renal failure specific to the severity of preeclampsia, um, but mm-hmm. certainly no longer lasting liver conditions. Yeah. There is a very rare complication of a liver rupture um, associated with preeclampsia and subtypes of um, eclampsia that are very unusual. Um, I don't have the figures off the top of my head, but I'm very happy to share them with Sue when I can find them. Um, mm. But they are very rare reports of subcapsular liver rupture um, mm. in embrace reports and things like that, which I can find. Fabulous. Well, as I always say, this hour goes the fastest of any hour in the week. <laughs> so I must say a big thank you to our lovely speakers and to our audience for joining us this evening. We are going to come back to preeclampsia and eclampsia and I would suggest that if you found it because for some of you you may not have done this yet in in uh, in university or it you might be a little bit rusty it is a huge topic and there was a lot both of our speakers have shared a lot of information and really useful information some fantastic slides which you'll get as your link after this but do I mean use this opportunity afterwards to share it with colleagues and just maybe and also I think Erin well done go and find your preeclampsia eclampsia box go and find all the different things that you'd need like your resuscitation get to know the equipment and the drugs don't you know get someone to talk you through it if you haven't gone through it because it can be well, it's like learning a new language and learning a new skill, having all these different things available. So thank you for give, being such fantastic speakers and giving us so, so much to think about. Now, I'm going to also thank Angelo, who's behind the scenes, who's going to make sure this is coming out sometime tomorrow and certainly the recording on eight, eight o'clock, at, no, six o'clock in the morning on Friday, for those of you like a podcast. And Paul, who's been throwing the questions through, which is why I keep looking at the screen to see what's coming through. And thank you to all of our audience who've participated, both in the discussion and in the questions afterwards. Um, And next week, now what are we doing next week? Oh, I can't remember. Isn't that awful? My brain's full of preeclampsia and eclampsia at the moment. Anyway, it's probably also because we're doing a face-to-face festival next week on the Tuesday. So don't forget to book for that or for the All-Ireland event on the 9th of April um, and the Leicester Festival on 14th of May. So there's plenty to to entertain you with the the, uh, Maternity Midwifery Festivals. And anyway, come back next week for a little surprise session on, on the 7th. Actually, I know what it is. It's about keeping it simple. And we've got Florence Wilcock. I've just remembered, and two lovely midwives too. So it's going to be deeper is coming too. So we'll see you next week. And in the meantime, take care of yourselves and thank you for watching. Take care.